Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Father Jim mentioned this last week in his homily, but this past Wednesday, or Tuesday actually, was not only Halloween, but it was also the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And as Anglicans, we have somewhat of a mixed feeling towards that. Uh, on the one hand, it grieves us that the church has been split uh, a number of times, and especially subsequently how we have over you know 50,000 denominations should make all Christians sad. But at the same time, we do come from that tradition, and it was to us a necessary step to preserve the truth of the gospel. And one of the rallying cries of the Reformation is, was the idea that Scripture is the primary authority, especially uh, within the context of the church. Of course, to properly understand the Scriptures, they have to be understood within the context of the universal and historic church. No interpretation of Scripture today should contradict what has been believed always and everywhere by all Christians. Nevertheless, the tradition is not the Scripture. Scripture holds a place of primacy for us as Anglicans. It goes Scripture, tradition, reason, and John Wesley added experience, which is somewhat debatable. So I want to pose a question for you today, a thought question. You can kind of meditate on it during the sermon, and then we'll answer it at the end. Why is the word so prominent in our liturgy? Why do we read so much scripture? If you went to the average megachurch or even just the average Baptist church, the sermon may be on a few verses. The pastor may be preaching through 1 Timothy or Romans or whatever book his favorite book is. And so he probably, you go in and he's preaching. My friend was at a church where the pastor preached through Romans and it took him six years. So can you imagine every Sunday you go hear a sermon on two verses from the book of Romans? <laughs> It'd be kind of exhausting. But when, one of the distinctives, one of the things that stood out to me about being Anglican uh, for the first few uh, months of, of attending an Anglican church is that there is not just depth of Scripture, but also breadth of Scripture. We don't just read one passage of Scripture. We don't just read a few verses here and there. We read an Old Testament lesson. We read a New Testament epistle lesson. We pray through the Psalms. We read the gospel. Not only that, but the scriptures permeate the rest of the liturgy. So one of the things that I, you may have noticed that I've been doing is after the prayer of confession, I read the comfortable words, which are scriptures relaying the reality of our forgiveness in Christ to the believers who make that true confession with hearty repentance, as the prayer book says. And so it just poses the, an interesting question, why do we have so much scripture? Some people might even say it's a little too much scripture, like, hey, dial it back a little bit. But we don't do that. We permeate everything that we do here with scripture. So why do we read so much scripture at mass? Why is the word proclaimed? That's the question to ponder. In order to answer that, I wanted to talk about what the word is. Bird is not the word. Um, John 1.1 1, 1 tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God is not like us. 
In fact, he's wholly other from us. We can't wrap our minds around the infinite existence that is God. He's not human. We're not God. And so there's a wide gulf between our understanding and the reality of his existence. Fortunately for us, the logos or the word is what makes him intelligible to us finite creatures. This logos is not inferior to God, but equal to him. The word was God. And in the Nicene Creed, we'll pronounce that Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God of one being with the Father. The word was also the agent of creation. John 1.3 tells us everything came into being through the word and without the word, nothing came into being. In Acts 17.28, Paul makes a similar point to the Athenians saying, in God, we live and move and exist. The word is revealed in and throughout creation. Think about language. I was explaining this to my Latin students. They didn't appreciate it as much as I did. The very fact that we can speak and I can mean something and you can understand what it is that I mean is mind-blowing. That the universe is intelligible enough for that communication to exist between two parties. That is reflective of the word. The order that you see in math is reflective in the word the, of, of the word. The beauty in art and in nature is reflective of the word. All of these things flow out of the organizing principle of the universe and point us back to him. Even with the word ingrained in the universe this is deeply though, undergirding our entire existence, humans still found a way to turn from God. Romans 1, 20 through 21 says, God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen because they are clearly understood through the things he has made. So humans are without excuse. Although they knew God, they didn't honor God as God or thank him. Instead, their reasoning became pointless and their foolish hearts became darkened. Sin distorted not only our reason, but it also altered our desires. If we, as God's creatures, are most alive when we're in relationship with him, sin uncreated, breeding annihilation and desolation in our souls. But thanks be to God that this word was not just the agent of creation, but also the agent of salvation. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Through the womb of the Theotokos, which means the God-bearer, refers to Mary, the word became embodied, no longer an esoteric principle or an undergirding impersonal force in the universe. He took on flesh so that we may know him. This embodied word was not a creation of God as the heretic Arius would have, us, have had us believe prior to the Council of Nicaea. This is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. Nor did his divinity cancel out his humanity or vice versa as Nestorius would have us believe prior to the Council of Chalcedon. This word is one person with two natures, fully God and fully man, the agent of creation standing in full solidarity with the objects of his creation. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God 
something to exploit. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and by becoming like human beings. He, when he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The incarnation, the word taking on flesh, is the decisive event where God identified with humanity in a tangible way as a means of liberating us from the power of sin and death and Satan. We were isolated, and so he came to our side to pull us out of our own depravity. The most interesting fact of the incarnation, and this is something I've been thinking about for a few months now, is that the word condescended in a particular time. Galatians 4.4 4 said, but when the fulfillment of time came, God sent his son born of a woman. So the word comes in a particular time, in a particular body, in a particular place, through a particular woman, in a particular people group. This phenomenon is known as the scandal of particularity. Why? Why those things? Why then? Why that body? Why, um, why that woman? It's kind of mind-blowing for us to think about the universal word, the agent of creation who's in all things and all things are in him, came into creation through so many particulars. That's not really a problem for our faith so much as an advantage to it. In the incarnation, the universal became a particular so that we particulars, that is us sinners, might be brought into the universal. Or as St. Athanasius said, God became man so that man might become God. St. Irenaeus echoes a similar sentiment in his on apostolic preaching when he says that in the gospel, the word of God, preeminent in all things, calls man back again into communion with God, that by this communion with him, we may receive the participation in incorruptibility. So the incarnation is the decisive event in salvation history. But any event requires interpretation. Events occur in objective reality, but we still can understand events differently. My ninth grade literature students are reading civil rights literature this semester. So we're reading uh, Up From Slavery by Booker T. Washington, and we'll follow it up with some W.E.B. Du Bois. We've already read Uncle Tom's Cabin and Frederick Douglass. And, um, and so it, get, it got a lot of interesting conversations happening in class. And we talked about the Jim Crow era when segregation was so prevalent in our culture. Um, so segregation was an objective reality that happened in southern states. It is not a disputed fact that it occurred. Any historian would tell you that, yes, in fact, there used to be black bathrooms and white bathrooms and, um, you know, black schools and white schools and, um, and all sorts of different, um, different ways that the races were kept separate. If you were a white proponent of segregation in the South during the Jim Crow era, you would have seen that phenomenon, the event, as positive and a necessary way to preserve social order. For people of color, on the flip side of that, it was an insidious and dehumanizing form of oppression. Those two interpretations of the event are mutually exclusive. They're not both true at the same time. One of them is more correct than the other. The question is, how do you determine which of those 
is more correct than the other. And one of the problems our society has right now is that we don't have any concept of objective truth. So it's almost impossible to determine between competing interpretations of an event. So we decentralize it. It's about what the individual feels or thinks about a given situation that makes it correct, not correspondence to the objective truth. The incarnation is a similarly contested event. Something objective happened and many people have come along trying to answer the question, what? What happened? The Jews mentioned by Paul in our first Thessalonians reading this morning attempted to prevent the gospel from spreading because they rejected the concept of the incarnation and they rejected the idea of Jesus as any sort of Messiah. I mentioned Arius the heretic earlier. He was the reason for the Council of Nicaea because he rejected the idea that Jesus was co-eternal with the Father, saying instead, Jesus was a creation of God. Nestorius rejected the title of Theotokos for Mary because he didn't see how an eternal being could be born. So he emphasized a disjunction between the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. Many other heresies have arisen during the history of the church trying to explain the incarnation, interpret the event that happened. And it raises the question with so many of these heresies, who do we trust? How do we know what happened? The answer is the church's apostolic witness, the preaching that we find in the earliest communities of faith. The Bible is not the word of God in the sense that it's the fourth member of the Trinity. However, scripture is a clear testimony to the word of God. As Christ tells the Pharisees in John 5, 39, examine the scriptures since you think that in them you have eternal life. They also testify about me. One of the ways God discloses himself to us, one of the ways he makes himself knowable is in the apostolic preaching contained in sacred scriptures. This word comes from the Father and points us explicitly and clearly to the Son. Much like he's ingrained in nature and creation, in language, in math, in beauty, in art, he's ingrained in the pages of the church's book, the Bible. The problem with the Jews in both of our, in the Gospel and First Thessalonians reading, is that they didn't see that reality. They use scripture, Matthew tells us, to exploit people, to boost their outer appearance and cultural standing and to receive praise from men. Instead of hearing God, much like their predecessors throughout the Old Testament, who killed the divinely commissioned prophets who were bearing God's word to the community, they attempted to suppress the gospel of Christ. So for a proper interpretation of the word of God, the Christ event, according to Paul, we look not to the human words of the self-interested groups like the Pharisees, but to the words which come from the Father that testify to the Son and so that kind of brings us back to the beginning of the sermon. Why read so much scripture? The apostolic preaching contained in scripture is best summarized by N.T. Wright, 
who says that it is a summons to worship God who is now revealed in Jesus the Messiah. It is the message, Irenaeus said, that the transgression which occurred through the tree has been undone by obedience at the tree. So we read so much scripture for a few reasons. In it, we have the clearest and most resounding proclamation of that gospel. But also Romans 10, 17 tells us faith comes from listening. When the gospel is proclaimed, it's not just words being said, but the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. Paul says that today in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. It, the word, continues to work in you. How does the word work in us? Through it, the spirit convicts us of our sins and conforms us to the image of Christ. Scripture is not one of the seven sacraments that we observe in the church but it is sacramental it is used by the spirit to bring grace to us for this reason our worship is centered around scripture so that we may be fed by the spiritual word prior to be to feeding on the eucharistic word so as we continue today let's let the word be in us working to form us into the image of christ empowering us to live our lives in Christ-like humility. Let us pray. Lord, let us hear your spoken word so that we may know your living word, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.